from lacrosse with three gin and tonics in me it is time for development hell it's episode number 11 ed can you believe we made it to another prime number no i cannot so uh on my uh, wonderful wireless usb headset is uh, chris harches and on the other end it's our other host ed finkler say hi to the internet howdy everybody so we've made it to episode number 11. And before we get started, I want to, as always, thank our awesome sponsor, Engine Yard. Engine Yard, if you're looking for a platform as a service that supports both Ruby and PHP through our awesome uh, friends at orchestra.io, you should check them out. I'm sure Ed will make more fun of uh, Engine Yard and Orchestra in the middle of the podcast. Yep. But uh, thanks very much. We're going to spend your money wisely. I'll probably spend most of it on more gin and tonics while I'm in lacrosse. Yep. Uh, so this week, kids, we have a very special guest. It is a superhuman uh, developer from Montreal who's now residing in Toronto, who we know as Joe L, but everyone else might know as uh, Joel Paris. Say hi to everybody. Hey, everyone. <laughs> That's it. Hey, everyone. And this is going to be a really short podcast if you're going to be like that. <sighs> well, the secret is I actually had mute. Um, and I started a sentence, and then I forget them as well. We started, then lost my train of thought. So, <laughs> so the reason we have Joel, yeah, the reason we have Joel on is because not only is he unfortunate enough to be our our close personal friends, but he also happens to work with Ed, and he's a guy that I'm jealous of because he made one of the successful leaps from doing PHP stuff to doing Python, and I guess now he's slumming again doing PHP stuff for fictive kin. So why don't you? Uh, why don't you tell us a little? Tell our uh, listeners, all three of them who are left after I talked about gin and tonics, who are listening, and tell everybody a bit about yourself. Yeah, <laughs> slumming it. Um, um, yeah. So my name is Joel. Uh, I've been a developer for basically as long as I've as people have been paying me money to do programming. Um, that's probably going on about ten years now. Um, Started off doing a lot of stuff in random things. I think my first professional job was writing. I know exactly what it was. It was writing a uh, JSP page. So this was in a time when Java server pages were still really popular and awesome. uh, weren't a joke. And um, it was for a paper company. I kid you not. It was for a company that sold paper. Hmm. And they had this huge catalog inventory. Uh, and their entire internal system was written in some homebrew java internal application and they wanted a way to be able to show their inventory on a website um and uh i had basically been tasked to do this um with my first job this is the first place i worked part-time when i was still in high school i believe and um actually the way that it came about that i worked there was pretty hilarious um i could talk about that later uh, i basically <laughs> <my first> job <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh <laughs> Oh, oh he's sorry. not done. Let him go. Keep going, Joel. I'll edit that in later. <laughs> um, yeah, I got my first job actually out of a gas station, um, and it was not sexually uh, in any nature. So, oh, weird. Um, yeah. Then that's, that's so uh, unexpected coming from you. Yeah, that, right. <laughs> I do hang around gas station block. Well, um, then stay with this company for a little while uh really just like a small little dev shop uh based on the south shore of montreal um moved to montreal proper uh to go to university did a bit of stuff there started to work for another company called plank uh which is actually a really awesome company and uh, i still keep in touch with some people there they do some awesome work and um, then started hopping around uh, at various different other places consulting uh development at different startups small stage mid-stage 
um, a little bit of odd jobs here and there, uh, really just to try and round myself out as a developer and figure out what I wanted to do, um, which I think was pretty instrumental in, in trying to figure out what my skill sets are, what they aren't, and uh, where I wanted to go. And then most recently, I uh, ended up at uh, Kim. Uh, along with Ed, whom I get to talk to every day, uh, which is a great pleasure. No, and no, it's not really. No, I was going to say, I don't <laughs> consider it much of a pleasure either. It's just a more like a necessary evil. Yeah. Uh, and I've been there for, what was it, since the beginning of last month. So uh, almost coming out two months now. Let's just say that, yes, it's been that way. <laughs> um <laughs> Now you, you guys are gonna you guys are gonna dump him just before his ninety day uh, probationary periods up, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, Sean has already fired me twice. So. Yeah, right. Uh, if I make it to two months, it'll be good. <laughs> yeah, right. Sean has an auto fire. If you mention coffee script in his presence, you're just automatically canned. I know it's so sad. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so didn't you? Uh, you were uh didn't necessarily start off thinking you were going to get into uh you know programming necessarily yeah i mean didn't you like have another plan for your life or something um well yeah i guess I don't, it, it's hard to ex- describe um i didn't go to school in computer science per se i did quite a few computer science classes later on in my degree when i realized that i enjoyed it quite a lot and i wanted to do that uh professionally more than just uh, part-time to pay for school. Um, but I studied um, physics and mathematics at uh, McGill University. So my I specialized in um, theoretical physics in that particular program and uh, did a bit of work in uh, high-energy particle physics, along with some other internships along the way. I did some stuff in uh, um, biophysics, which was pretty interesting. And um, so a lot of really, I guess, like math-oriented things um, interested me. And I uh, kind of fell on programming uh, almost accidentally. Um, coming back to the previous story, I wanted to teach myself how to program probably since I was about 11 or 12. And when I was 11 or 12, I, I went to the library because people still did that then mm-hmm. and got out a book on uh, how to program. And of course, you know, as a kid, you're really interested in uh, video games and whatnot. So, of course, I, I think my first book that I took out was on 3D game programming. Uh, and that was a complete and utter failure, uh, especially when you start talking about like quad trees and whatnot. And this is someone who didn't even know how to, how an object model worked or uh, what a garbage collector was. So, oh, right. 3D Still programming. Still don't! Wasn't the best. Real nice. <laughs> 3D programming probably wasn't the best intro. Uh, so when I figured that out, I went back a little bit later and got a book on uh, introductory programming in Java. And uh, after maybe two or three false starts, figured out what was going on. Um, because book at the time, and I think not so much these days, since it's a bit more, uh, there's a bit more knowledge on how to teach programming correctly. Uh, they kind of assume that you already knew how to program something else. And uh, you were just jumping in and wanted to learn the new Java syntax since it was all hot at the time. So wrapping my mind around the object model and what you know, this referred to and what a superclass was took quite some time. I finally managed to write some simple programs and teach myself some programming. Uh, and then wanted to get into some web stuff because uh, that seemed to be a really interesting avenue other than just making you know, simple command line 
calculators that every little book made you do as an example. Um, didn't really do anything professionally for a while. And at one point, I ended up working at a gas station part-time uh, on the weekends, basically to save up some money to pay my way through school. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, it was night shifts on the weekends. And one of my clients that used to come by pretty much every Thursday night or Friday night uh, to come get a pack of cigarettes, I'm guessing like after he finished working, uh, he stopped by and he looked really, really down on, down on the dumpster and not too happy. And I, I decided to try and cheer him up and see what was going on. And so I just popped around a bit and it turns out that he was sad that uh they wanted this he worked for the company this development company um uh they wanted this contract they weren't able to get it because they didn't have the talent uh to be able to program that particular language and this particular framework and uh, they needed the money but they weren't sure how to do it so they're trying to figure out a way out of it and they had until uh, monday to figure it out and uh, I nonchalantly ask him, like, oh, what, what programming language is it in? And uh, he kind of looks at me and he says, like, well, it's in Java server pages. I look at him and I say, well, oh, I can do that. And uh, I just sold him a pack of cigarettes at this point. So he was a bit skeptical. Um, asked me a few I questions. I cannot I imagine from... why. <laughs> yeah, asked me a few questions. Uh, told me to come in for an interview on Monday. I went in, uh, passed the interview, and they hired me uh, part-time on the spot. And that is actually how I got into professional programming. So you sold a man a pack of cigarettes, and out of that became a burgeoning career. Yep. Nice. Now, that's way better than my backstory. That sucks. Keep going, Joel. <laughs> Well, I, I'm saying I, I'm pretty sure I would have ended up in programming at some point. Um, it would have just taken a bit longer, and I might have taken a slightly different path, and I would have ended up in different places for sure. But uh, it was a, a bit of a serendipitous moment, I guess, that all those things kind of just came together. So before you ended up with the uh, fine folks at Fictive, can you, if I remember, you were working for a place in Toronto and you were doing machine learning. So one of the things I've written on our awesome um, pirate uh, pad here was that if you could talk to perhaps give like a little uh, machine learning for noobs to kind of give us an idea of, uh, of what machine learning is all about and trying to explain it in a way that uh, even a dumb Canadian PHP programmer like me could understand it. Yeah. Um, sure. So the company I worked at was a startup based out of Toronto called uh, Unata. And uh, what they're building is a platform for doing um, machine learning and analytics on purchases and purchase histories for uh, consumer goods. And uh, it's all a business to business company. So the idea is you end up going to other, you end up going to uh, companies like, let's say, a grocer or a big box retailer and uh, telling them, like, look, you have all of these things. You have a loyalty program. You know what people are buying. Um, you have receipt data. You have your whole item and product inventory that have you know, descriptive um, fields to all the elements. You know the prices. You know all these things about your stuff um, that you're selling, but you're unable to do anything more than just offer coupons or specials based on the fact that last quarter around this time, you sold a lot of television sets because people want to buy television sets before X sporting event or whatnot. So there's all this data lying around that 
people uh, could be using to better monetize and to better advertise to their consumer base. And uh, why well, I was hired on there as the senior architect to help develop a system that was able to do this. Uh, my primary role there was to develop the distributed system to do the computations and to also help on the um, actual implementation and development of the algorithms being used. Um, I obviously was alone in this. We actually had a fantastic guy uh, who was um, um, our main computer scientist, uh, who his name was Diego, a uh, super awesome guy. We imported him from Argentina, um, did his master's degree at MIT, um, got a Fulbright scholarship as well, which is basically incredible. Uh, really, really intelligent guy. And um, with him and uh, another guy named Amr, we built up uh, this whole system to be able to do all this computational, uh, computationally intensive tasks to figure out what people should be, uh, what people would be most interested in buying based on previous purchasing habits and a whole bunch of other contextual information that I may or may not be able to talk about. Cool story, um, bro. <laughs> <laughs> So essentially, you tried to you you made a system that would figure out that uh, I uh, wanted to buy chocolate chip cookies after I bought a Hustler magazine or something like that. Right? I don't think we ever had that in our cross validation, but yeah, that that might have been a pretty good case. Yeah, there you um, go. I admire your taste, Ed. Hustler is really high class. Yes, yeah, I, I stick it's the classy stuff. So there's a um, there's a lot of things going on, um, and especially when you're talking about not non fake data. When you talk about real data, like a uh, grocer or a retailer, uh, their data sets are very rarely in an ideal and pristine condition. Oftentimes, they've been mangled over the years. They've been gone through two or three different iterations of a different SAP product. Um, fields are missing, they're wrong, they're corrupt, they don't have the right values, units are in the wrong um, dimensions for certain products, or they're different across things. Uh, so a lot of the trouble is actually making sure you can normalize across those uh, those different inconsistencies, and then being able to try and make sense out of all that. Um, so to come back to like Ed's example with a grocer, um, he's talking about like a chocolate bar and a Hustler magazine, uh, that's actually something that could very much be possible to determine. Um, there's a lot of different avenues. You can do like a co-purchase analysis, which is, um, let's say you walk into an Apple store and you buy an iPod. Well, you can also look at all the other people that bought iPods and find out what is the most common item that people purchase with that. Um, is it perhaps the Apple Care or a wall adapter or an extra set of headphones or maybe an iPod case? And then you can go and try and upsell that based on the fact that you know that 75% of people are going to try and buy this other item. Um, so maybe you want to try and incentivize that. Um, maybe not necessarily give them a discount since you know that a lot of people are going to be buying it, but maybe try and uh, sell a more expensive item or a house brand item that you have uh, higher margin. Um, there's a lot of these like little, little tricks that you can do. And when you, Go with a retailer that might have like a loyalty program. Uh, you get a lot more information because then you suddenly have historical data that you can type. Uh, so, for example, you can go in there and say, "Well, two weeks before 
Thanksgiving, it turns out that this particular family or this particular person tends to buy a lot of these items. Um, let's try and factor that into what we're doing, into the equation. And maybe we can figure out some um, periodization that makes this useful, that we can then be able to predict when they're going to be uh, using similar items in the future that might not be, let's say, around uh, Thanksgiving, might be later on in the year, maybe for Easter. So like, um, like right before Christmas, they'll buy like a bunch of alcohol. And then like the day after Christmas, they buy a gun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah I mean, assuming, I, I'm guessing you're talking about the States because I'm like, well, no place would sell alcohol and guns. But of I'm course like, oh, not. I'm pretty sure they're yeah, well, you I'm could, pretty sure they're Walmart. Yeah, I, I think they sell alcohol at Walmart, and I know they sell guns. So, so Joel, is Python, like, in terms of, like, its rank, in terms of uh, languages that are used to build machine learning systems like this, is Python the most popular, or just they, um, you know, Unata happened to be using Python to do it? Well, Unata at the time was using a bit of a mix and a hodgepodge. I came in kind of, they had two guys doing uh, the initial prototype of it, who uh, have since gone on to do their own uh, startup. And they were really just brought on to write up a prototype and, and kind of like get it out there so they could show investors. Um, and the whole thing was meant to be stripped to the ground and rebuilt. Um, they were initially using Rails as a front end for the uh, HTTP API, since the whole thing runs off a mobile platform. And um, the back end was done in a uh, mostly naive fashion on purpose to be able to be done quickly uh, in Python. Um, so when I came in, one of the first things I did was strip out the Ruby from the front end and replace it with Python. Um, not for any religious reasons or whatnot, but really just because having one consistent language ends up being a little bit simpler to then hire for and to uh, share skill sets across. So we didn't have to hire six people with Python experience and another four with Ruby experience and then not have them uh, and then have a harder time moving people around from project to project, uh, which is a big concern when you're a small startup. But so I guess my Python question, is, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> sorry, go ahead. Uh, so Python is actually very useful for prototyping and implementing a lot of machine learning algorithms because the ecosystem for all the tools is rather well-kept, uh, rather unique, I would venture to say. I think the only language that might come close, the only really commercially viable language um, that comes close would be Java and its library sets. Um, C++ has some as well, but it's very... And then you end up having a program in C++, which is never really that much fun. Um, Java has a very good set of libraries to do a lot of the uh, a lot of the similar things that Python can do. And um, other than that, I think the only real options you might have, uh, academics will always be using MATLAB um, or some very similar tool. Um, but Python just gives you a speed of development and uh, access to huge amounts of libraries and uh, SciPy, SciKit, NLTK, NetworkX, uh, everything from graph algorithms to network flow analysis to um, you know your your very base methods in machine learning that you need to have to be able to uh, expand upon. Interesting. That sounds hard. Well, of course it's hard, Ed. It's stuff that yeah. we don't know how to do, so of course it's hard. Right. 
Well, I, there's a lot of math involved. I think that's really just what gets a lot of people up, uh, hung up on it is that to understand what's going on, you need to be able to sit down and read a paper. Um, like we'd go through papers on, uh, we'd have an entire channel in our internal chat dedicated to interesting papers to read. And a lot of these were uh, academic papers that were being published or had been published on various different topics. Uh, maybe there was some new method for doing random walks on graphs that would yield some interesting results for uh, product recommendation or tripartite graph recommendations. Um, you might have had an interesting paper. Oh, a famous one that we looked at uh, right from the get-go was the Netflix Prize paper. There's actually a lot of really good stuff in there, um, especially because they discuss all the things that worked and didn't work, which in academic papers, you never get to see the stuff that doesn't work. So I got a so, question for you then. I got a question for you then, Joel. As a guy who's done both Python and, and PHP, what do you think is the um, what do you think is a common fallacy that PHP uh, developers have about uh, Python? Like, what do you think it is that what do you think it is that PHP developers think that Python is that it isn't really? Like, what, what would you say to a, a PHP person uh, about Python that they might not uh, realize is, is true? You know what I mean? Like, there's bound to be, you know, every every language has opinions about everybody who's, who does development in, in one specific language always has uh, ideas and potentially misconceptions about a particular language. So what would you say is the biggest misconception that that from your experiences of both being in PHP and Python that PHP developers might have about Python? Hmm. You know, I don't hear a lot of, I'm pretty familiar with um, a big portion of the PHP community and um, I really don't hear too many PHP devs ragging on Python very often. The PHP devs will rag about a lot of other languages and I think it's kind of reciprocal. Um, you hear the Ruby guys ragging on PHP a lot, some very well merited rags um but then php likes to fire back python just kind of python devs just kind of do their own thing and try not to get involved in a lot of these holy wars which i think is an admirable quality um i think my one and this is someone who's done both languages rather extensively at this point uh, i think my one criticism if i put my php shoes on um, or maybe not criticism, but common fallacy would be that PHP developers look at Python, they say that the language wasn't developed to work on the web. And uh, they'd be right. Uh, web capabilities for Python were added in uh, progressively. It's now a very capable web language. And of course, you have some very popular web frameworks in Python. Uh, Python also has as many web frameworks as there are Python developers, um, which is a common PHP joke. Um, but it's no longer, the fallacy is exactly that. Uh, I think it's evolved quite a bit, and there's some very interesting things that you can do with Python. Um, I think PHP does sometimes get hung up on the, uh, on some of the syntax, the lack of curly braces, obviously because Python is white space uh, limited, which can, which can trip you up uh, if you're not ready for it, for sure. So when you were learning Python, were there any particular resources that you thought were helpful uh, to you to, uh, you know, to, to make the switch? I mean, did you find it? I mean, I know from my own experiences with Python is that I, um, I haven't found it particularly hard to pick up the basics. But um, 
but perhaps it's because I kind of approach it a bit of hodgepodge. I tried to do some Python, and I tried to do some Django, and in many ways, Django kind of reminds my my early efforts with Django kind of remind me of my early efforts with um, Rails. How Django is kind of sort of a DSL sitting on top of Python. I mean, not as extreme. I don't think it's as extreme as it was where Rails is really a DSL sitting on top of Ruby. But I just found. Um, I found it hard to try to learn Python and um, Django at the same time. I guess it'd be no different for someone trying to learn PHP and then a a popular framework on top of PHP. So what are some of the things that you found helped you uh, make a smoother transition based on your knowledge of PHP, trying to get up to speed and being um, not just familiar, but productive with Python? Like, What are some of the things that you found helped you make that switch? So Not, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe, maybe making a maybe, maybe making a switch is the wrong uh, phrase because you clearly haven't given up uh, slumming with PHP, but um, but just making it easier for you to get productive with Python. So one of the first things I do whenever I'm trying to pick up a new language is um, obviously read up on the syntax and the standard libraries because those end up being very useful. Um, but don't try and get hung up on the fact that you're missing a whole bunch of that you don't know that certain things exist or that. Um, a particular method might exist. Uh, those usually come up on a per-use case basis. You think, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if something did this? And usually some, you're not the first person who's thought of that. Um, and if you're smart enough, you'll end up trying to search around and you'll find the, the little missing bit that you're looking for. Um, but coming back, the thing I like to do the most is find a very popular and well-written library, something minimal, something that isn't hundreds of thousands of lines of code, and uh, I go in and just dive in and, and look at how it's structured. I think one of the hardest parts of picking up, not necessarily a language, but in, uh, a new way of thinking, an ecosystem, is looking how projects are structured. If you look at PHP, PHP developers tend to structure their projects in a certain way. They will put their, they'll put their classes in a certain folder. They'll put their bootstrap files in this other place. Their files will... Uh, have different conventions based on the projects that they're part of. Uh, And much of the same thing exists for Python and for whatnot. Um, So one of the first things I did is look at a fairly popular and well-regarded web framework uh, called Flask. And looking through the code and the organization and the structure of how Flask was built um, was one of the more enlightening and more interesting experiences uh, and was probably instrumental in uh, furthering my understanding of non-trivial Python code. I have used Flask. I built a, I built a little Flask app that ran on Google App Engine just for a, a little toy website idea I had about lies that parents tell their kids. So it was just a little experiment on doing some Python web programming and fooling around with Google App Engine. So I have used Flask and I really like it um, is really a very uh, minimal framework. Reminded me a lot of um, Sinatra from the Rails side in terms of its its goal to be as kind of minimal as possible. And uh, I guess some other uh, things like Slim PHP and some of the other micro frameworks that Ed loves so much. It's kind of similar, uh, in my in my yep, opinion. It's anyway, very similar. It's very similar in their in their goals to provide really just a thin glue layer that lets you. Um, do stuff quickly, and gets the very big boilerplate out of the way. And um, Flask is written by a guy named Armin Ronecker, who's one of these stars of the Python community. He's written, uh, him and the team uh, behind a a team called 
Poco. I don't actually know how to pronounce that. Poco, Poco, Poco. Um, I've never said it out loud, funnily enough. Um, they do a lot of really awesome stuff and have provided some libraries that uh, fundamentally have changed how people develop uh, in Python, especially for web applications. So, yeah, Armin is one smart motherfucker, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah you've, you've probably used some of his code before. If you've ever used Pigments, the highlighting library, uh, syntax oh, yeah, highlighting that, library. Yep. That's used on my blog, yep. So it uses Pigments to do that. So you use code that he's written or touched or blessed or whatnot. So. <laughs> he blessed it for you. Just for me and me alone. And I, and I appreciate that. You have to have an individual relationship with him. It's like having a relationship with Jesus Christ, <laughs> except with the Python programmer. It's exactly. almost it's almost the same thing, as far as I'm concerned. Is he your, is he your, <laughs> your your personal programmer? No, you're my personal programmer. That's right. Thanks, baby. That's nice. Um, so, uh, I you did some stuff with some things and in that place in that, in that place. place that one time. So you've been doing a lot of, uh, but you've been doing a lot of op stuff lately, right? I mean, well, I know that because I work with you, and it seems like that you've been <laughs> just all you've been just doing op stuff lately, and I hope that's okay because it seems to be what you're stuck doing. Um, <laughs> but and Ed, um, and Ed, uh, yeah, I, yeah, and Ed didn't add in the fuck you while you're at it too. But go ahead. <laughs> no, but uh, so well, I usually tell to fuck off being the ops guy so <laughs> right exactly why do you tell this it worked um but uh but we've been doing some interesting stuff i think with uh with vms and stuff uh at at fictive and i wonder if you can talk a little bit about that i know sean has talked about that a little bit like in some he's given a couple he's been at a couple oh my god i just want someone that. to show me how to use vagrant properly for god's sakes that's all i want well there you go see <laughs> So why don't, you um, tell, why don't you tell us a little bit about that since I, I don't know, I just type words in and it magically does shit and I don't know how it works really. It's good. That's, that means I'm doing my job well. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I, since I've been working with fictive kin, um, my role has been very much DevOps. Uh, yeah. DevOps doing, doing more ops and dev at this point, uh, which is totally fine. I, I quite enjoy it as well. And um, I run it with uh, Sean and uh, we've developed a very, very awesome infrastructure. I think it's probably one of the best remote development infrastructures that I have ever seen or heard of. And so in, what, in, what, in what way is it tailored towards remote, though? I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by your statement. Okay, so um, I can't talk about completely everything because there's some secret sauce in there. Um, but I can give you the general overview. And I, I, Sean gave a talk about uh, the basics of our setup, which is uh, a good good kind of like introduction just to it. And that's already public information. So um, I'll be able to talk about that. Um, basically, we want to try and reduce the amount of friction to have developers help each other out. Developers, ops, uh, business people, whatnot. And you've kind of got different layers in which people do this, right? If you, everyone works in the same office, it's very easy. Everyone has their own development environment. You kind of just like make do and whatnot. Um, then the next level up is uh, people might have a shared development server. So you log in, 
and everyone is allocated like a V host, or maybe you're using like FreeBSD jails or something of the sort, um, getting a little bit more fancy. And everyone has a development environment that ends up being consistent. But then you have to be able to log into this machine. Um, you might not be able to do it offline. Actually, probably won't be able to do it offline because it's a remote development server. Um, you might have to be logged in. You might have to be at the office, or if you're not at the office, then you have to set up some complicated VPN client or whatnot. And um, doing all of this ends up costing you a lot of pain. Uh, sorry, costing you a lot of time and causing you a lot of pain. Um, the next level after that is you want to have virtual environments that everyone can run. So you have some uh, VM box that is pre-provisioned with all the different things that you need, um, web server, whatnot. Uh, and you say, okay, you know, check this out, uh, do a shared folder thing uh, with whatever code that we need to get on it, and then you're good to go. Uh, that's already miles ahead of the first step. Uh, but then you end up in situations where you need to update people's VMs. You maybe change the package of a library, um, or you need to upgrade a version of some essential component. And now you've got, you know, if it's five developers, it's not really too much of a problem. But if you've suddenly got 25 developers or 50 developers or whatnot, it becomes a huge pain in the ass. Uh, and this is where tools like Vagrant and uh, a tool that we use quite heavily at Fictivekin, Fictivekin uh, called Puppet, comes into play. Um, so Vagrant is really just a, a really simple way of managing virtual environments in a headless manner. So you don't have to have them in a GUI or whatnot, um, and then click start and all this stuff. It really just gives you a command line interface to be able to start and stop virtual machines and configure them in a rather simple way. So we can assign like a host-only network. We can say, give it this much RAM, um, use only one of my two CPUs, and you know, share these four different folders and map them to uh, these folders on the VM machine. Uh, and you can do this without having to go through like a point click GUI, but you can do it instead by just editing your configuration file. Um, and that's really awesome. Uh, the next step after that, that uh, on more people end up choosing, especially with Vagrant because it makes it so easy, is to have um, configuration management. Um, our tool of choice is Puppet. There also exists Chef, uh, which is fairly popular, especially in the Ruby community. And um, another up-and-comer, which I'm paying close attention to, called Salt. Um, all of these things, what they want to do is abstract away the configuration management of um, services. And uh, a very simple introduction to that is if you've ever decided to put, let's say, your Apache vhost configurations under version control said, hey, I change these files a lot, and sometimes I screw up. It'd be great if I'd be able to roll back if I mess up. Um, and you put them under like a small little Git repo, or maybe you had them under SVN you know, way back when, when that was still a thing. Um, and that's a very introduction, uh, very introductory step into configuration management, very naive and, and uh, brittle way. Uh, Puppet lets you do these things in a much more formalized, much more centralized manner. Um, in such in such a way that you declare resources and services and um, files and different types of resources and what they should look like when the whole system is configured. And uh, that's basically what we end up doing for all of Fictive Kin. Uh, so all of our production infrastructure, all of our uh, staging, QA, all of our development VMs, 
on 99% of every machine that we have running, and that last 1% is being fixed in the next day or so, um, is currently completely centrally man managed and controlled. Um, so that I can tell you what's running on any machine, on any development machine, on any production machine at any time. I'm impressed. I think from a developer standpoint, I think what is really nice about that is from the experience that I've had, experiences that I've had um, trying to set up a development environment on the host, on like your, say your host machine. So yeah, on OSX and, you know, on my uh, MacBook or what have you. Um, it's, it seems like it's always been really hard to figure out like why it doesn't work on somebody's machine, you know, and there's so much more stuff that could go wrong and you can't, you can't like directly manage, you know, say this mm -hmm. remote guy's machine. Um, and had cases where it was like, well, let's see if we can try to get it on the phone or can you copy and paste, you know, what it's having you're basically, you're trying to, you know, it was a real nightmare to try to figure out, well, why is Apache keep screwing up for this dude or what have you? And and it was a particularly hard when you had people who needed to have a development environment weren't necessarily, say, folks who knew really in and out like how to how to, you know how to configure Apache or how to how to get these things up and running on their own. Right, um, which you shouldn't assume that someone knows how to do that. Right. Like if it's a if it's someone whose job is to uh, do design or integration work, or maybe just QA. Right. And uh, they might have those skills, but they shouldn't be required to use them uh, because that's a waste of their time in a lot of cases, right? Right. And, and so yeah. I think with the system that we have, one of the great things is I almost never hear it doesn't work on my machine. Right, exactly. Right? Because that's, no one will ever say, oh, it works on mine and it doesn't work on yours. Uh, what well, I don't know what the difference is, right? Because everything that we run is up to configuration values, completely identical. Yeah, and we is, also have yeah, some of the yeah, secrets. Yeah, this is so, this is something that I that this is something that I talk about too. That and this is a nice segue as well because uh, both Joel and I will be uh, speaking at Lone Star PHP at the end of June, and um, I'm doing a talk on. Uh, I know you're going to be doing your talk on. Uh, machine learning for complete morons, and um, you're doing another talk, which uh, escapes me because I'm not sitting in front of my computer, but I'm going to be talking about infrastructure debt, which covers some of this exact stuff uh, that you've talked about, where you want to reduce my whole thing is like, uh, it's about reducing friction, but from a slightly different perspective, where my goal is to, to show people how to reduce that friction from when um, you get an idea of some code to implement it and how to get that up into production where everybody can see it with the minimum amount of hassles. Mm -hmm. And, and the use of VMs is something that I, I highly advocate, but like I, I talked about Twitter and I've talked about this numerous times where I must not be using vagrant in the correct way. Cause I continually have problems with vagrant deciding to not load the machine anymore or dropping my shared folders and stuff like that. So I'm about 99.999% convinced that I'm doing something in particular wrong. It's a bit finicky. Um, like all virtual machine things, uh, things tend to go wrong just as much as they go right. Uh, so VirtualBox is actually what powers Vagrant. VirtualBox is the actual VM uh, system, and Vagrant is really just an API on top of that. 
Uh, and in reality, Vagrant actually talks to another API uh, written by the same guy that is written in, uh, and is also written in Ruby. Um, so you're having an API that talks to an API that talks to a virtual machine. And things can go wrong uh, very easily, especially when you're dealing with networking, if you're moving from place to place and changing, um, changing IPs and all these things. Um, so you're probably not doing anything wrong. It's just that the basic setup for Vagrant is not the most robust uh, that for dealing with environmental changes. Uh, oh, really you're so you're so sweet for trying. You're so sweet for trying to tell me I'm probably not doing anything wrong. Meanwhile, I'm sure you're thinking that Hart <laughs> is just a dumbass and he doesn't understand what he's doing. Um, no, no. I mean, uh, there's many other reasons that you might be a dumbass, but this is oh snap. Uh, no yeah. episode is complete um, with the guest insulting me. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so, Vagrant is really optimized to get up and running really quickly. You download VirtualBox, you download Vagrant, you know, Jam style Vagrant, and uh, you use one of the example Vagrant files, you download a bunch of stuff, basically a base image, and then, boom, you're good to go. You have an instance running. Um, there's a lot of other things that you need to think about or do to make it a more robust setup. Um, and we do a lot of those things at Fictive Kin uh, because we've figured out what works and what doesn't. And uh, it's not the same for every company or every... Um, every set of individuals. I mean, there's a lot of things that we do that are very particular to the fact that we all live in different time zones around the world and uh, very rarely see each other face-to-face compared to somebody who works in an office with 15 other people. Um, they might not necessarily need all the little tweaks and refinements that we've made to make sure that your computer can survive, you know, going to sleep and coming back up in a different network and uh, your VM just keep chugging along. And, uh, you know, I can still SSH into Ed's VM and make changes, or I can, um, you know, go and check our production instances and uh, make sure that everything is working correctly there. Um, certain companies might not need all that flexibility, and it might not be worth the time in uh, the time and investment of energy to actually like, get there. So the, the nice thing is it's flexible. The bad thing is that it's flexible. <laughs> It kind of sounds like PHP. The good news is that it's flexible. The bad news is that it's flexible. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like sets of best practices, but best practices are people have just started to really use virtual machines properly, and uh, it, which is a funny thing because virtual machines have been around for so long. Um, you look at uh, what was it called? What was that VM product that's really like the first one before Parallels? Um, was a long time ago. Like I can't even remember, but I do. I do remember early on when I was working for a very for that very sketchy uh, online uh, cheat on your uh, wife dating site that we used the concept of BSD jails to try to simulate kind of a virtual um, environment for the application. But I guess that's a kind of a really early example of I don't know, not virtual machines, but more like isolated environments, so you could have multiple environments running on the same. Um, server BSD well, jails are actually the the best of the breed. Um, they're just a bit of a pain to get set up, and you have to be running BSD. And as a side note, that company still uses BSD jails, by the way. No, um, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, despite um, my attempts to distance myself from them, I keep running into people that work for them. So you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, there's. The, the BSD jails are actually, I think, the best possible 
implementation of this. Um, the problem is that BSD isn't well, isn't used by the general development community, at least in the ones that I work in. Um, so there's a little lack of familiarity with the tool set and a little bit of resistance to adopting yet another difference uh, in systems and architecture. Um, but yeah, they, they've existed for a long time and people are really just starting to use them more uh, for, for more interesting roles. I think a lot of it is because we suddenly have machines with a lot more memory. We have machines with a lot more CPU. We have um, a lot more, a lot of different requirements than we did 10 years ago. So let's segue into something else. Now, um, the first time I met Joel was at uh, PHP Quebec, which is the precursor to Confu. And I remember uh, sitting in, uh, I was there when uh, Joel uh suddenly learned how to use one of his most potent weapons was when Joel got an introduction to actual productive use of Vim when we were sitting in uh, Andre, uh, forgive me for butchering his last name, Zimievsky's uh, presentation that he, get on, he gave on using PHP um, with Vim. And so I wanted to get, because I've, I've been a Vim user for about four years now, and I'm, I guess it must be almost about the same for you, I would think, at this point. And uh, had you seen Vim Adventures? Uh, did you take, check it out? It was being tweeted around, I guess, early today, um, late yesterday, where somebody's come up with a, a game where that's essentially Vim Tutor with a bit of a graphical interface. And if I read some other tweets correctly, you get up to a certain point, and then you have to pay to continue playing the game. So what are your? So you want to talk a bit about your experiences with with Vim? Because I know Ed's not a Vim guy, and I've given up trying to convert him. So you really um, never tried. You should try a, well, lot, a lot harder. Well, because you're you're uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call you names on the podcast. I'll save that for afterwards. But um, but you know, just I want to talk a bit. If you want to talk a bit about Vim and your use of it specifically, um, sure. I use it for pretty much everything. Um, I have Vim open all day long. And it's my primary editor for almost everything I'll do, from, a to, from anything from a to-do list to um, writing a patch for a project or implementing um, any of the things that I do for And it's always in some sort of Vimish environment. Um, I love it. I've probably been using it for about, what do you think, though? Yeah, probably about four years, I guess. And... Uh, it's become an essential tool set. I don't think I could go back to non-Vim world. So what is it that you found about uh, about Vim that, I mean, I know everyone's experience with Vim is different. And, and for me, it started off because I had to do a lot of um, code editing on remote servers. So it made sense to, to learn Vim. And then over time, I found that I really liked the power of Vim, that you would have a, actually a quite powerful... Um, editor on its own out of the box and then the fact that you could find plugins to do any number of um, redonkulous things and so um, and I, I especially found that as I started having to fool around with more languages not just PHP but Ruby, JavaScript, uh, Python um, all sorts of stuff that Vim just seemed to be like if you were if you were dedicated to the path of the polyglot programmer that it became harder and harder to just to ignore Vim because Vim just gave you the ability of, you could throw almost any language at it. And Vim was like, bro, I can handle that. No problem. Has that been your kind of your experience as well? 
Um, yeah, I mean, my the reasons I keep using it are numerous, but uh, I think the main ones are it's available everywhere. Uh, and that's probably the number one. Uh, it's available everywhere. When I log into a remote machine, uh, Vim is a very simple installation away if it's not already there. Um, my configuration for Vim is rather minimal and I'm very portable, so I can really just copy my config file and move it over to somewhere else. And I suddenly have my whole development environment that I'm used to and comfortable with available. Um, maybe minus some uh, extra colors because maybe the terminal doesn't support more than two and six colors. Do you, do you uh, find yourself is, using? Do you find yourself using a lot of plugins, or, you try, or do you try to keep the set of plugins that you use to a minimum? I try and keep the plugins to a set of minimal to uh, as minimal as possible. Of course, I add in a bunch of extra syntax files um, because the basic Vim install might not have syntax for uh, newer things. For example, CoffeeScript. Uh, that's one that I have to install a syntax file for. Or, oh, don't uh, say that. Hamel. You better hope, you better yeah, hope that Sean fired. doesn't hear this podcast. I say you just got fired again. <laughs> I got to fire yeah, you by yeah, proxy. Yeah. It's okay. I usually get hired again within the next five minutes. So. <laughs> yeah. Mostly because there's too much stuff to do. Um. So syntax files or whatnot, those end up being added rather liberally as they're needed. Um, but yeah, the core Vim experience, I try and keep as minimal as possible. Uh, because there's there's a lot you can do with just the basic motion commands that might scare off some people. I think a lot of people really just go with the very basic Vim uh, editing modes, HJKL, and then some visual modes, uh, and really don't explore objects um, text objects, which ends up being the next most powerful um, element of it. So text objects combined with motion commands give you this whole world of possibilities. Um, and then you add this with all the nice things that make Vim unique amongst all the editors, like um, the ability to set some jump points. Like I can set 26 different jump points in a file in between files. I can um, have 26 different named registers or copy-paste buffers uh, so that I can you know, do a whole bunch of really fancy things with that uh, and have a really minimal editor that doesn't get in my way along the way. Like I'm just looking here. I just took a look at my, my .vim directory just here on my MacBook, and I've got 19 plugins. Um, so I'm wondering if I'm at the high end or the low end. I, f I find the, pl the plugin that I really have gotten most used to that I probably couldn't do without is um, – is the surround plugin where I've gotten so used to highlighting blocks mm. of text and then using surround to do stuff to them, to wrap quotes around them, to wrap uh, HTML tags. That's the thing I find the most when I try to use another editor uh, that has Vim bindings and I fool around with other ones once in a while, like sublime text Two and other ones like that, just to get a feel for them. And I find that's always the thing that I um, I've got my muscle memory has gotten so used to, highlighting blocks of text and then doing surround stuff to them. That That's the one feature mm -hmm. that I really miss. I mean, I have other stuff here like um, Nerd Tree, which I've started using, Close Tags, Syntastic, Tabular to line things up because at, um, at Kaplan Professional, we have a, a code sniffer that looks for coding standards to be followed, so I'm constantly having to line up array assignments and things like that. So um, Vim Fugitive, um, I have Puppet stuff in there. Um, tag list, uh, oh, Vim Powerline, which gives me a really awesome looking status line. Um, so, I mean, that's the thing that I like. And I find myself constantly s uh, kind of swapping plugins in and out depending on 
what I happen to be working with for an extended period of time. So um, that's the thing I find too, is I tell people, once you start using Vim, not only do you get the muscle memory wrecking you from using any other editor because you end up with all sorts of colon Ws and HJKL characters inside uh, inside uh, editor screens when you're using something that's not Vim. So that's always kind of humorous. I find myself forgetting that, oh, I'm not actually in Vim, so I can't just do a colon W and, and write a file to disk. Don't you yeah, think the that... The other times I've written an email and then hit colon W and be like, oh, wait, no, that, that doesn't do anything. Don't you think I used that... to be a MUT user as well, but... Oh. I'm talking now. Oh, sorry, Ed. Go ahead. Don't you think that um, muscle memory is like the thing that makes it in the end? That's like what what people fight over, and like that that's what leads people to be so uh, how should I say loyal to a given editor is really just that if you do something an exact you know a certain way a hundred thousand times you know it's really hard to disassociate that like that that action with that muscle movement? I, I agree, yeah, because I think really, I mean, I'm a big believer in one of the tenets that the, the pragmatic programmer guys have is like, pick an editor and learn that editor inside and out. It doesn't really matter which one that you're using. What matters is that you use that thing in the most efficient way possible and find out everything that that particular editor has to offer. So as the more time I invest in them and using things like Joel talks about text objects and using plugins and get it so that you're kind of doing things really automatically without thinking about them. Your brain just says, yeah, you need to do these keystrokes to accomplish a, a certain task. And yeah, you almost, yeah, you're, you're right to a certain extent, Ed, that you end up, you're fighting over uh, muscle memory. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like I, I picked up sublime text pretty quickly is because it's pretty similar to TextMate, And I was using TextMate for a few years and then, but it's sort of like, but there were differences and it took a little while to get around them. But now, like once I use them, I know it's going to be a huge pain in the ass to get rid of it. Like I'm going to want to hit, like I'm going to want to highlight stuff and do command D to like select all the other instances of that, of the characters in that selection in my file. And then I can just type over all of them at once. Right. And I know that that is going to be such an enormous pain in the ass if I ever want to switch to something else, because if it doesn't work exactly like that, I'm so used to doing that because I do that, you know, 50 times a day that, you know, it, it really gets hard to switch to something else. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, I agree with the just find an editor that works for you. Everyone has different requirements, different projects, different ways of working. I I used TextMate for a long time before I picked up Vim, and uh, I realized that the thing I liked the most about TextMate was the configurability and the key bindings. Right, and that's what Vim has in spades. Uh, it really wasn't you know the the very TextMate style things that it had. You know the Command T find in all projects or files or whatnot. Um, those were nice, but I really enjoyed the ability to hit a key or two and then have a complex sequence of actions uh, occur. And the idea of bundles as well, too. I, th- I think that an editor that is configurable to the point where you can extend it easily um, is essential, at least for me. And uh, most modern editors and IDs fall into that category. So, I mean, if your preference is NetBeans or Eclipse as a fully integrated development environment, then like that's awesome. Uh, if someone's able to learn it and learn it well, uh, more power to them. Uh, I quite enjoy Vim, and uh, I'm not going to, you know, it's not a 
a religious thing or a, a holy war that I'm trying to incite. It's really just this is the editor that I've I've fallen in love with, and I think is appropriate for nearly all the use cases that I put it through. On the uh, when I am on a Unix shell, I always use Nano because I uh, used uh, Pico when I ran yeah, Pine. Yeah, yeah, Pico so, was my nice. first editor too. Yeah, right. So I still use Nano for all that junk and. I know. Yeah, I used Pine in university. Right, exactly. So, um, one of these days, I'm going to start try to like write a blog post that tries to explain that Nano is actually like the way that people should be doing stuff. Like it, like <laughs> Nano needs to be rediscovered, and Nano like, is the superior editor. Right, exactly. And like make a, have a whole movement over it uh, about it. <laughs> Like uh, uh, I think it'd be I'm, I don't know I'm gonna I double dog dare you to create Coco Nano so. I, I oh, want to see awesome. you do Coco Nano Get going at, yeah that'd be awesome all the beauty <laughs> of OSX with the power of Nano <laughs> sell in the App Store for four ninety nine and then retire in the Bahamas yeah that would be great like ditch all Fuck you yeah. ditch all you fuckers at work <laughs> now but uh, I it's you know I'm just so the, what it is is that I know how to get stuff done in Nano fast fast enough that like I just cannot bring myself to take the like two to three weeks it would take me to like get to up to speed in in, a, in another less embarrassing editor, right? So I just can't. Well, I just can't it do it. It takes a while, right? You know, You're because right. like doing that that doing that switch. I did it, and I was working at Plank. So this was quite a while ago. And um, it was nearing Christmas. It was maybe early December. And that's usually a very like, down time for a lot of projects. Nobody wants to start anything new because they don't want to start anything for the holidays. And I said, you know what? Now's a really good time. PHP uh, Quebec, I had some... This was like a few months prior to that. I'd gotten some um, good exposure to it. And I said, I tried a little bit, but then kind of went back to text make because I need to be productive. I said, you know what, I'm going to hunker down and just do this. So I did a cold turkey. And uh, for about a month and a half, maybe two months time, my productivity was, I could feel that it was less than what it was when I was using TextMate. And I always had this urge to just open up the editor and say like, oh, well, I'll just, do, I'll just edit this text in here because I, I know how to do it really quickly. Um, but I resisted that. And instead, when I wanted to know how to do something quickly, I looked it up at how to do it in Vim which took five, six times as long, obviously, because I have to look up the commands and then I have to execute them and do it badly and redo it two or three times and finally get it right. Um, but that was really instrumental to me being able to learn how to use the editor appropriately. And, uh, and I think there are really two schools of thought. Some people say that you should just do it cold turkey and others say, you know what, you can kind of ease yourself into it. Uh, but for me, the the full cold turkey I'm using Vim and nothing else uh, was really the, the shock to my system that it needed. Um, and yeah, I was totally unproductive. Well, not unproductive, but very, very much less productive than I usually was. Oh, that, was a, for that was a pretty, that was a pretty abrupt end there. <laughs> yeah, it was the same thing with me. I started off slow and just worked my way around with the arrow keys and then learned how to highlight text and jump around from thing to thing, place to place. And I still feel even after four years, there's tons I still um, need and want to know about Vim. And I don't think I'll, I don't think I'll ever stop finding 
um, interesting things. I think more likely is because my memory is so bad. I'll forget that I learned how to do something. And then like two years later, I'll go back to, I'm like, man, I wish I knew how to do this other thing. And then I'll discover it. And then I'll, and I'll find fragments of it in my Vim, uh, my Vim RC file that, Oh, at one time I did do some mappings to that particular plugin. What the fuck? I don't remember doing that at all. (laughs) Yeah. It's like every, every couple of months I have to reteach myself how to, uh, the syntax for, for, uh, awk. Okay. Right. So far, oh, yeah. so right. awesome. But like every time I teach myself, I'll use it for maybe a day or two to do some uh, some analysis of maybe like log files or whatnot. And then after that, I just completely forget everything I've learned. And then three months later, I have to do the same thing again. I have to relearn everything I just learned. Yeah. If you don't, I'm the same way. If I don't do something consistently, I've had to, you know, you have to relearn over and over. It's really annoying. But a lot of times you just do a task and it's like, I mean, I've done that with a couple different things. Like, I've I've written Python stuff here and there. Like, I've used Python for, like, a couple web apps and stuff. And But th- it was so spread out, and it wasn't consistent. I never learned it well enough where I, f- I could have, like, jumped back in and, and just know what I was doing, you know? So it's always stuff like that. It's like, you know, how did I make this grip shit work or or you know xargs i always forget how to use xargs correctly right and i always have to look it up but because i don't i you know i don't need it for like four months or longer you know but then when i need it i really that's like the only thing that's going to do this correctly so yeah exactly Uh, then i just i have to every time i just have to look it up you know or google it or something like that you know to figure out how to remember redo how to you know do this task so yeah so, Ed, do we want to pester uh, Joel about his time as a core developer for not just one, but two pretty well-known um, PHP web application frameworks, or do we want to save that for a future appearance? Oh, I think it'd be interesting if he's up for it. Um, you up you to talk about your cake and lithium uh, time, uh, Joel? Sure. I'd, I'd be, what, I, think what I, I think I'd be interested in, um, you know, well, obviously... You know, I I've written some about sort of some of my thoughts about, I guess the the you know the use of full stack frameworks versus you know small frameworks, micro frameworks, and uh, are you laughing at me? I can hear you laughing at me, Chris. Dude, I, I, that ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I let me put it this way, Ed. I respect your position. I may disagree, but I respect it. Right. So, uh. Yeah, so you know, I obviously talked a fair bit about that, and that you know, my my preference is is is, is strongly for uh, having, a, I guess, you know, I don't know, the smallest code base possible, I guess you'd say, but still comprehensible, and uh, and you know, lots of small or maybe not lots, but small components that fit together and are easy, really easy to understand. So that's why I like, you know, micro frameworks like uh, Flask or Sinatra or, or things like that. Um, as opposed, So I'm more like that guy as opposed to like Django or, you know, or Zen Framework or Symphony, you know, or stuff like that. Now, I, I've done a little bit of stuff with Lithium and I never mess with Cake. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not in a good position to make any kind of judgments about those or or speak intelligently on it, but you know, I so within that context, I'd be interested to hear kind of what your thinking is. Like uh, now, you know, having been somebody who 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 worked a core on a couple of of popular uh, 
uh, I guess you'd say full stack frameworks. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to have the privilege to work on the cake PHP core team for, uh, I guess so almost two years. Um, and as well work on the core team and still work officially on the core team for lithium. Although I don't, don't contribute much these days, uh, mostly because of lack of time. Um, I've, I have read your posts on, uh, micro versus i guess macro frameworks and i myself give talks on this particular topic once in a while as well too um and i think you do bring up a lot of good points and for a large part i think you're right and i know this might sound weird coming from someone all right who... that's all the time we have for joel today <laughs> <laughs> um this might sound odd from someone obviously who has invested a lot of time and effort into uh to of popular full stack frameworks. Um, but I think you'd find that the harshest critics of full stack frameworks tend to be the people who develop them. Right. And we're, I mean, when I was working on Kate, we were very well aware of all of the problems that the framework had uh, because we were also some of the heaviest users of it. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with lithium. I mean, it's a new framework, but the people who develop it are oftentimes ones who will really push it to its limits. And uh, we'll find all those weird corner edge cases. Uh, now, of course, this isn't you know, a hard, fast rule, uh, but that's been my experience. And my, the general thing I like to tell people is that a full stack framework is very useful when you don't know where you're going to be going. Um, if you're, for example, when I worked at Plank, they, were, they are a web development agency uh, that have many different clients. And their mandate is to create something that's visually and aesthetically pleasing, something that is very usable and can be and a project that can be done within time and within budget and repeat this, you know, a dozen times a year. Um, for something like this, where you don't always know where the scope of the project is going to be for the next client or even during the same client, since things tend to change so often. Uh, a full-stack framework is a fairly good choice because it affords you a lot of flexibility and it gives you a large resource base uh, because there's a healthy community around it, there's a lot of people doing work on it, and you can get bootstrapped into a new project rather quickly. Um, for something like a startup, a full-stack framework is probably not the best choice because, yes, you might be able to get started very quickly, but the thing you're trying to avoid the most, um, which will happen anyways, is technical debt because that just accrues and accrues over time and suddenly you suddenly starts hindering your actual development. Um, whereas for something like a web agency, that's really not the, an issue because a project is done and completed within a couple months time and is very rarely visited upon uh, for anything more than minor updates or changes thereafter. Right. Uh, whereas for a startup or someone who is building an actual product, the, the goals are very different. So something like a micro framework that lets you get started very quickly, um, but doesn't invoke a lot of dependencies uh, is I think a better choice in general for that, that group. Um, if you're just getting started into web development and programming, I also discourage full stack frameworks in general because they hide a lot of complexities that you should be aware of. Uh, the fact that people are using frameworks like cake and don't actually know what, um, you know, cross request forgeries are or um, you know, XSS. 
the fact that some developers are using these frameworks but don't know what these terms mean um, is a bit scary and a bit frightening. So I guess there's a couple, like, there, it's interesting you say that. Because one response I've gotten to some of the stuff that I've talked about has been that uh, full-stack frameworks are better for beginners and or because not everybody can be an expert, really high-level programmer. Uh, and that it is it allows um, developers who maybe are not highly skilled, um, it, it allows them to do things more safely and follow best practices, whereas you have more flexibility with, uh, you know, your, 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 I guess the idea being the full-stack framework basically sort of puts you on uh, a certain path or, let's say, rails that you go on that keeps you going in the same direction. <laughs> um, well, I think, yeah. again, it depends on what you want to do, right? right. Where it's the same issue as uh, I was discussing before. Right. Are you trying to get better at programming, uh, at web application programming? In, such, in, in that case, you want to actually know uh, more about HTTP. You want to understand how cookies fundamentally work. You want to understand how, uh, how and what a session uh, is and how it can influence your, uh, sorry, not how it can influence, and how your application can use it. Whereas if your objective is to just crank something out very quickly, uh, which is a totally fine thing as well. Like I'm not, I'm not looking down upon that at all. Um, if your job is to just get something out and quick and just be usable, then a full stack framework is a better choice in that regard. So it really depends on the, the short and long-term goals of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I can dig that. Um, so, so some people are right. Uh, yeah, a full stack framework is easier to learn on. You can make less mistakes. Well, if the point is to make mistakes so that you can learn from them, uh, then the full stack framework will hide that from you for a much longer time than something more stripped down, right? Um, and it, you, if you're trying to be a better developer, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go for a, a long period of time without understanding how basic HTTP requests work and understanding the difference between a GET request and a POST request and a PUT and a DELETE and all these things, um, because the application layer will just hide that from you. Like that, that should not happen. Right. Uh, if it does happen, it's because you've implemented it and you've understood it and, uh, or you've added a separate library to your micro framework because you made that implicit choice. You, you made that, sorry, explicit choice that you needed um, this particular library to do these particular tasks. And that implies a lot more th thought that went into the process. So, Joel, do you think that the trend now where it looks like uh, Symphony 2 and um, Zen Framework 2 seem to be trying to – I'm trying to think of the right label – to make themselves an enterprise micro-framework? Is that a fair label to apply where they're trying to keep a small core and then you build up your application by applying uh, components on top of it? Do you think that will go a long way towards um, your idea that – I mean, I – I'm kind of torn because a lot of times I agree that for beginners, it actually may be quicker for them to build an application with a full stack framework, just like you talked about. But again, they end up not really, they end up understanding how to build something with the framework and not necessarily with PHP. So mm. do you think that may, maybe this tendency uh, where both both the major uh, PHP frameworks are trying to go with a small core and then bring in components in to accomplish tasks, do you think that will kind of help people people who want to build stuff with PHP kind of get the best of both worlds? 
Um, I don't know. That's a that's a good question. Um, I can let you in on a dirty little secret. The reason this happens with frameworks is because uh, the core, developer, core developers want to maintain less code. Um, so by giving people hooks and a whole plugin architecture and system and the ability to override as many little or large pieces of the framework as possible, uh, you let people, you let the community start to manage things instead of you having to manage everything. Um, because a line of code that a core developer needs to maintain is very rarely one line of code. It's usually four or five lines to add some very trivial little feature plus another 50 lines of tests, uh, the unit tests and integration tests and functional tests. And then the other like page and a half of documentation that describes how this feature works and how it integrates with all the um, other systems and whatnot. So everything you can avoid maintaining in the core is a win. And I think this is generally why everyone does it. Um, whether or not Symfony or Zend have particular reasons, whether they be financial or um, market-oriented uh, or not, I don't know. Um, but the plugin slash component-based architecture is fundamentally one that's easier to maintain over the long run uh, because you do end up having to, you end up in a lot less technical debt, again, to use that word, which I don't like, but is very descriptive. Well, I you like don't like, what do you, what do you think it should be called instead then if it's not technical debt? What do you think is a better label? Um, Dumbass decisions? <laughs> no, because <laughs> sometimes you take on, actually every project will take on technical debt that they know is technical debt, right? You do it because you know there's some faster way of doing it. It's the reason why, um, you know, you look at someone and you say, well, why didn't you write just, you know, a two-line bash script to do that? And you're like, well, no, that's not extensible. And they write some uh, huge object-oriented system to do what a two-line bash script was able to do. And I think technical debt has this negative connotation to it, but sometimes it's really just the right choice at the right time. And it continues to be that right choice for a long period of time until circumstances arise that make it, that make it so it needs to be refactored or changed or it suddenly affects other parts of the systems in a negative fashion. So I just dislike the negative connotation that technical debt has when a lot right. of times you knowingly take technical debt and you are okay with it. And sometimes it's the right choice. Well, so an example I brought, I, I did this, the uh, uh, micro PHP talk at um, Oink Pug, the, Ohio, Indiana, Northern Kentucky PHP users group down Cincinnati just last week. And, uh, you know, one of the things, I think a good example of a choice that like we made effective can in a lot of places do is we use Elasticsearch and, uh, for search stuff because it does search really, really well. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't think any of us are like, would, would have just decided let's put you know the java runtime on there and install last search and all that stuff unless there was a really really big win you get out of it right mm -hmm. because that's a bunch of other shit we have to worry about right to make sure that that thing's operating correctly it's you know none of our other systems rely on like the java vm and things like that so we but you get that big win out of that product. And sometimes it makes sense. Maybe it's not always debt, but I guess maybe you might say technical responsibility, technical yeah, I baggage, yeah, maybe. I, mean, I, don't I don't know. know. There's got to you know? be a better, uh, there's got to be a better label. I mean, technical debt is the easy one. And I agree with Joel it has a bit of a, um, a negative connotation to it, but I mean, 
I've been while we've been talking about this, I've been trying to think of a better descriptive label to uh, to you know a better label for it. And um, I don't know. I can't think of. I, I just can't think of a better one. I, I don't know. There must be one. I just don't know what it is. Well, it's convenient because you know everybody kind of knows what you're talking about when you say that. So I guess it's just. I, I guess it's right. an unfortunate label. It's like a brand name to describe mm-hmm. a certain set of. Um, policies that and decisions that people make when they're building apps, and you know there is technical debt, and, and there's other types of debt. There's that to to be the egomaniac and plug myself again. There's infrastructure debt, which is a a concept that's sort of orthogonal to it, but um, it's the idea that it's debt, and and there's and just like in real life, there's good debt and there's manageable debt, and there's I'm going to be sleeping in my car uh, type of debt. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm. I, I didn't, you know, I don't have a better suggestion for a word. Uh, if I did, I would have mentioned it by now. Hey, what's <laughs> it in French? Maybe we should use the French one because it'll sound cooler. Oh, oh, God. I don't know any technical terms in French. Le debt technical? <laughs> well, in French. Le debt polytechnique? Is there a better one? I don't know. In, in French, don't, don't the French insist on making up their own words for all, like, technical terms? Um. It depends. In I've Quebec, heard that, like, officially, I guess in France is what I'm thinking of. I don't know about Quebec. Quebec is actually more strict on that than in France. Um, in yeah. France, the they have a body called l'Académie Française, which is uh, organized with figuring out new words for new things. Oh, so good. let's say... Joel talks French. That's awesome. Keep going, bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's say you come up, there's a new thing that's invented, you know, like um, a computer, right? Computer comes out. Nobody's ever heard of a computer before. We need some word to describe it. Um, L'Académie Française is the organization that's tasked with figuring out a new word to describe this thing. Uh, The problem is that they take a long time to do it. And by the time they come out with a new word and publish it in the dictionaries and make it official, people have already adapted uh, either an existing word in French or have hijacked a word from another language, most of the time English. So basically, Um, they're like the linguistic equivalent of the W3C. Yeah, yeah, basically. Everyone's already <laughs> passed on. They're like, dude, we figured that out. Right. <laughs> Four generations ago. Um, and so you end up with words that in France that um, we don't use in Quebec or in, in Canadian French uh, because we've already, our, our, our usage of the word is much more current and we figured out a word for it um, far ahead of time. Uh, I think the, my favorite one is email. Um, in France, they'll just say email with a French accent. And, oh, uh, oh, email. Oh, oh. Nice. Yes, yes, email, baguette. Oh, oh. Um, and then in Quebec, um, the very common term that you'll see on billboards that people use very uh, on an everyday basis is uh, courriel. And uh, that's just how it is. You say courriel to someone from France and they have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Word. Yet it's the more official word than email, which is really just the you know the stolen word from English. I thought that was like a pastry. <laughs> so it wasn't. Only on this podcast do we let our ignorance shine through like a badge of honor. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh no! That, my whole life, really, not just here. I do this all the time. <laughs> I think everybody, knows. as listeners of the podcast, know very well. Yeah. Exactly. Or anyone who's ever met me. What were we talking about? I totally forgot. Uh, we were talking about technical debt, and we were trying to. And I said, I want to know what it's called in French. Mm-hmm. 
technical sandwich. And I think I just killed the podcast with that commentary. Yes. <laughs> God damn it. I'm afraid to open up my browser and look at our notes. Do we have anything else to talk about? Uh, I don't know. Let's see. We covered uh, Vim Adventures. Well, we kind of talked about it, but Ed was like, fuck Vim. I don't use it. So you didn't want to talk yeah, about it. We talked right. about machine learning for noobs, sort of. We talked about python from a php perspective sort of uh, ed hijacked the podcast for me to talk about devops with joel right uh, yeah i don't know man we don't have much else to talk about you want to make fun of engine yard for a little bit and then we can end it ed yeah i i kind of feel like i should bring up their website to do that properly oh so here we go i hope this this, uh, this this has become my favorite part of the podcast joel where ed makes fun of the sponsor all right i hope <laughs> this won't kernel panic seems like a again. prudent course of action yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, uh, I was so I actually, you know, went down to Cincinnati. And, oh wait, graphing. We want to talk about graphing in, in JavaScript because you've been working with. Oh that. yeah, I guess to talk about that for a second, we should probably have a little engine yard break. So let me bring up their website and see if there's something I can find that's embarrassing here. Um, Other than their continued association with Elizabeth Naramore? That is embarrassing. I uh, actually, you know what I I. I uh, stayed at her place uh, in Cincinnati, uh, and oh, uh, really? To, yeah, not yeah, not like that. But um, damn, yeah. And uh, anyway, episode itself. But keep going. And I met her, and uh, you know the dude Rubius. Yes, I know Scott. Uh, yes, yeah, Scott. Scott's a great guy, and I got to hang out with him. We watched. Despite uh, him being a sleazy Ruby guy, he's he's, he's all right. He is very sleazy, just beside the Ruby thing. And um, we watched Hot Tub Time Machine. Neither of them had seen that movie. And so, have you seen Hot Tub Time Machine, Chris? I have not. You, but I know you don't have anything better to do. So what the fuck does that mean? I know where you're stuck in lacrosse or whatever. That there's nothing to do there. Hot Tub Time Machine is a you great should, bad movie. Yeah, you should watch that. It's on Netflix. So uh, I, in fact, after this is over, I have to update the PDF version of my blog for of my book for Lulu.com. So don't be judging me on whether I'm doing nothing, dude. Nobody's gonna buy that. Oh, ho! Oh, what do you mean nobody's gonna buy it? That's not nice. That was subtle, Chris. Subtle, subtle plug. <laughs> <laughs> see, Joel's the only guy that got it. That's awesome. That was for yeah. See, I was I was just looking for another chance to. Uh, <laughs> to enrich your fellow podcaster, I understand how it is, Ed. So, Engine Yard, I think sponsors the. I think they did. They sponsored. Did they sponsor the Vagrant development, like development of Vagrant? Um, I don't know. I, I from I everything also, I can see, it tends to be one guy that's maintaining it, uh, yeah. obviously with contrib- contributions from a lot of other people. Uh, but I don't actually know where he works. I'm trying to bring it up now and. Probably this isn't the best thing because the engineer website is suddenly really slow. But um, maybe they're spinning up new instances. Yeah, that must be what. Happened. Let's see what stupid stuff they've got listed here under their open source. Whatever Ruby on Rails. Who cares about that? Um, fog. I don't care about that. I was really sure they had done something with. Watch it be like some other competitor of theirs. Like Heroku um, or something? Yeah, something like that would be awesome. <laughs> um, uh, let me see. That would be great. 
if it was. Oh, well, I see a blog post on Engine Yard. I just did a search with the Googles, and it tells me that. Maybe uh, that's Engin- it. It was on their blog, so I kind of thought they must yeah, have yeah. something official. Back in, yeah, back in December of 2010, they talked about how they've been directing uh, some of their uh, clients, and they're teaching some class. It seems like they were talking about uh, they had some people in at th- just uh, before Thanksgiving in 2010, and they were just they had their training team, Engine Yard University, and they wanted to show people some stuff about virtualization, and they recommended people uh, use Vagrant. So they just showed how they just they talked about how they kind of did a class, and they showed people how to use Vagrant to. We built using Vagrant. We built a headless VM that runs a full Ruby on Rails stack for local development. Oh so, yeah, yeah. Well, the dude yeah, yeah. On, on the thirtieth of March, uh, the dude who this guy Mitchell Hashimoto, right? And uh, it says they gave that engineer gave him a grant to work on it a couple of years ago. So and he mm. and I think he posted this because he had just like one came out just like a few weeks ago. So nice. So engineer doing its part for the community by throwing some money at a uh, vagrant dude. Right. What if he looks like a vagrant? Well have you seen the icon for it? Yeah, it, but this is I mean like that's, a hobo. A hip, that, that's a hipster looking guy. Who knows if he really looks like that. Yeah that guy looks like he rides a like a fixie in Portland. It looks like he's about to take his pants off at the Portland airport. While he's going through uh, security. Oh God, I can't get that image of <laughs> my mind. Now. What does that mean? Oh, was that that guy? Oh, that's right. A guy took all his clothes off and walked naked through security, right? Yeah, that was in Portland. As some yeah. sort of totally uh, uh, misplaced uh, protest against the against the system, man. Yeah, I'd do- still make him give me a pat down. Like, no, no, you got to be sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Dude, as a foreign national in another country, I'm like frightened to death to upset those people because I may never be allowed to come back here again, which may please a lot of people, but it would put a serious dent in my career, I think. Does that mean, <laughs> can your wife declare you legally dead if that happens? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to ask her. Yeah. I'll, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to talk to my lawyer and my accountant and see if, can we have me declared legally dead yeah. as a way to get around these restriction rules of entry into the United States? Right. Well, it's not a person, so... Um, yeah. Maybe for tax purposes, I can be dead for four years. We'll have to figure it out. Yeah, why, why not? It's good. Well, the kid, he's got his little picture here next to his blog post, and he looks like a clean-cut kid. So, uh, also, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it looks like... I hate like, when those guys, we can't make fun of them, because, you know, then it makes them seem more human, and that's just not cool. Well, he did say this. People like Yehuda Katz and John Rezig were my idols. I'm just taking that as a quote out of there. So <sighs> take from that as you will. I don't know. John I, Rezig is awesome. John he makes Rezig everyone is, else look unproductive. Except he couldn't yeah. finish his fucking Secrets of the JavaScript Ninjas book. He, well, that's okay because the cover was a samurai. So it was a big lie. That, that would have upset how, me. What, what's that book been in development? 12 fucking years now? I still get emails <laughs> that it might be done someday soon. I don't know. Is it, I, I find it shocking that Guns N' Roses got Chinese democracy done before John Rezig got his <laughs> JavaScript Ninjas book done. That Duke Nukem Forever was released before JavaScript that's Secrets even, of the JavaScript that's Ninjas. That's even more embarrassing. That's well, you know that Rezig isn't even author on it anymore. He... I, he well, I know. Quite he, wisely he, he, said, yeah. I obviously can't finish this, and now they've got some other people. Or but something. why did you wait six fucking years to do it? That's my. You know, I guess the thing that bugs me is that, and I guess I understand why they don't want to, but it seems to me that maybe they should just give everybody's money back. You know, because. It's, I... it's, like, it's like us with Engine Yard. We're not giving that money back for any goddamn reason. They have surely made plenty of money off the interest. 
I think rule number one of, of corporate businesses is when you get their money, don't give it back to them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. And did you order that book too, Joel? Because I no, I didn't. Well, when I said something about it, like on Twitter a few days ago, um, it's like six or seven people were like, "Yeah, I ordered that book too." And it's, I think a lot of people paid for that book, and is it's been it, it's been like four years at least. At <laughs> that's least that's depressing. <laughs> yeah, at what at what point that I, I, you can't you know I and I know I can download early access stuff. Just give me, I paid for the book. Just is it one it. of these things now, like when you have to talk to John Resig, his publicist says, and you're not allowed to talk about secrets of the net of yeah. the JavaScript Ninja book? He'll get really mad, uh, and you'll you can be- talk about anything. You can talk about jQuery. You can talk about his work for Con, uh, for uh, Con Economy, all that other shit. But no, you're not allowed to talk about that book that he never fucking finished. <laughs> yeah. I think if you say it three times fast, he has to appear in your living room. Yeah, he's like Candyman. <laughs> shit, that's awesome. I'm so dared to do- John Resig, John Resig, John Resig. Oh, God. oh no, he's not here. <laughs> it's because we're in a different time zone. That's the problem. Right, yeah. So, um, you know, the graphing stuff, I'll just talk about next time. That's fine. But uh, Yeah, we can talk about it when it's just you and me and we and we don't have anyone else to talk to. That yeah, I might also know a little bit more about it. I've only been screwing around with it two days, basically, and I really barely know what I'm doing. So. Yeah. All right, so Joel, thanks so much for coming on, dude. This has been uh, this has been a good talk, and I, as always, uh, despite my jokey demeanor, I've learned uh, I've learned a lot from talking to you today. It's been tons of fun. Yeah, it's been great talking to you guys too. So as always, uh, thank you very much to Engine Yard for sponsoring our podcast. This is what number four or five or three or five? I can't remember how many they how many we agreed to do for them. Is it is it three now, Ed? Well, I, kn- I know what we agreed. Because I don't know, because right. you still haven't sent me my share of the money. Hint, right. hint. That's really what it's about. Um, <laughs> you're not supposed to talk about that on the podcast, dude. God. Um, and Coke aren't free, Ed. Yeah, that's a good point. That. I I think this might be the fourth one under the sponsorship thing. One so. more. So if anyone else is listening and want to throw some money at us so we can talk shit about them, I am totally open to that. Yeah, if uh, like Joyant would like to sponsor us. Or... I probably shouldn't mention other competitors, but um, maybe Fictive Ken would like to sponsor the podcast, dude. <laughs> you think we have money? Yeah. They pay me in. They pay me in, in uh, candy corn. Yeah, and actually, uh, well, although got, in Canada, candy corn can be used as currency. You can so. trade that for raccoon. You use that until you eliminate the penny. You'll be able to pay for stuff in single denomination <laughs> candy corn. Right, right. <laughs> That's what'll replace it. That or bottle caps. <laughs> all right, so I think we've come to the end because we're getting all punchy. So uh, this has been Development Hill Podcast, episode number 11. As always, thank you so much for sticking around to the bitter end to hear me make fun of Canada's currency about being replaced with candy corn. So we also want to spank our, spank. <laughs> spank our friends at Engineer. Thank our very special guest, uh, Joel from Krypton, for agreeing to fly in and share his uh, otherworldly powers with us this week. So... Um, as always, you can find us online at uh, devhell.info. You can find us on Twitter at dev underscore hell. You can find me on Twitter as Grumpy Programmer without the U. You can find Ed as Funkatron with the U. Uh, thanks so much for listening. This has been Development Hell Podcast number 11. We'll see all you guys soon. Yeah, and make sure to rate us on iTunes so we can get rich. <laughs> all right. Peace out.